What a customer was eating five years ago is completely different now. So you've got to stay sharp on that market front. Because food waste really starts at the farm and then it finishes at the end of a scraped plate. This is the Food and Beverage Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. Hope you're hungry. Let's dig in. All right. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the MarketScale Food and Beverage Podcast. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the show. Got a great episode lined up for you. I can't wait to bring it to you. Today's episode is titled All of the Meat, None of the Animals. And that's because the first feature of today's show is called Manufacturing Healthy Deliciousness. And it's with Zach Weston, the corporate engagement specialist for the Good Food Institute. And he's going to talk about the physical benefits of this new trend in clean meat. And we're going to find out a little bit more about what that means, what that is, and how it can benefit every aspect of the food and beverage industry. So everything from farming to distribution to overall health of the food that we're putting out. It's going to be a really interesting conversation. I think you're going to want to hear what Zach Weston from the Good Food Institute has to say to our correspondent, Sean Heath, this week. And then our second feature of the day is called The Latest in Nutrition and How Restaurants Can Take Advantage. And I'm going to talk to a dietitian nutritionist uh, named Caroline Weeks, and she's going to keep us updated on all the latest trends in health and nutrition and talk about how restaurants can really take advantage of those, uh, those trends that are going on. You know, at the beginning of the year, a lot of people start off with resolutions of I'm going to eat healthier, I'm going to do this, I'm going to stop eating out. And maybe people stop going to restaurants, restaurants that you own or that you work at or that you run or that you uh, create menus for. So I think restaurants can do a lot more to capitalize on people trying to think healthier and eat healthier. Uh, If they're able to know ahead of time, here are the health trends that are going on right now. This is what people are looking for when they go to restaurants in their food when it comes to healthy eating. So if we have a better idea of what those things are, uh, menus can be better crafted to take advantage of that rather than suffer from it. So that's going to be the second feature of the day. Talking to Caroline Weeks, she's a registered dietitian nutritionist at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. It's going to be a really interesting conversation as well. I'm really happy you've joined us for this episode of the show. Without further ado, let's talk to Zach Weston. He's the Corporate Engagement Specialist for the Good Food Institute, coming up next on the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. Welcome to Market Scale Food and Beverage. I'm your host, Sean Heath. Now, I will be the first person to admit that I like meat. I like hamburgers, I love bacon almost as much as I love my children, and I don't apologize for that. Now, the one thing that I don't do is I don't generally go through the thought process of tracing the path of my food. And in America, in the United States, we generally don't do that. If we didn't grow up on a farm, we don't think about what that chicken patty used to be. We just focus on the fact that it's there we eat, and then we move on about our day. However, if you wanted to put in the barest amount of research on the internet, you could absolutely find out everything and more that you ever wanted to know about how food winds up near your face. Well, today I have the privilege of talking to someone who's very aware of that whole journey, and he's on the forefront of helping improve the process. 
Today, I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Zach Weston. He's a corporate engagement specialist with the Good Food Institute. Zach, how are you today? I'm doing very well, Sean. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's really my pleasure. Let's just jump right into it. So you're working on something called clean meat. I know a little bit about this subject. I will lay out the bare minimum of what I know and let you take it from there. As I understand it, there is the ability to take certain specialized cells from animals and culture those in some magical environment in in a, in a lab or in a, in a production facility. And the end result is you can take those cells and actually grow it into meat without actually having to slaughter or harvest it from an animal. Is that accurate? Uh, yes, that is accurate. Uh, so at, at the Good Food Institute, we're, uh, you know, we, we identify very much with how you, uh, you introduced uh, this session. Um, for a lot of consumers, we get it. They, they really love the foods they eat and they don't always want to think about where it came from or they don't just don't know where it came from. Um, and that's fine. We're, we're all about trying to create a more sustainable, healthy and just food system uh, with uh, new types of technology so that the consumer gets everything they want from food that they're, they're used to, but uh, it's just a little bit better for the environment, a little bit healthier, et cetera. And so one of the technologies that we're most excited about is, is this uh, technology exactly. It's clean meat. Uh, so something that right now doesn't uh, isn't available in your grocery store or restaurant, but is coming. A lot of startups are working on this, and additionally, some larger companies are looking to commercialize this technology within the next couple of years. But uh, at its base, it's it's uh, fairly like straightforward to to understand, at least in theory. Um, rather than growing the the muscle tissue that we know of as meat inside live animals, uh, which obviously come from uh, typically uh, fairly crowded and uh, often very unclean conditions. Uh, clean meat is produced by taking a few of those animal cells and then using a mixture of nutrients to grow those cells into a piece of meat uh, in a clean facility, like a, a meat brewery or a meat factory. Um, as a result of that, we get pure meat. Um, it doesn't require any antibiotics to do it. It doesn't require slaughter. Uh, it isn't going to suffer from any sort of uh, gastrointestinal E. coli contamination or salmonella contamination. Um, it's a completely sterile environment. Now, when you want to try and introduce a change into someone's uh, patterns or in the way that they go through their everyday life, there are a lot of different factors you have to take into account. Sometimes there's emotional connections. Sometimes there are financial connections. There are an awful lot of, uh, of metrics that you have to consider. You said something very important, and I'd like you to expand on it. If I take these cells from an animal and I'm able to take them and, and cultivate them in this, this clean environment, doesn't wouldn't that take away a lot of the things that that animal would eat later in their life that would then be passed on to me through the meat? So like antibiotic residue, you mentioned bacterial contamination. I don't see how anybody would have a problem with that being the food that they were eating. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's one of the, the massive benefits of this. Um, so the, currently the, the meat that we eat uh, that it comes through the animal slaughter process uh, gets contaminated. There, there's just no way to avoid that through the slaughterhouse process. Um, when you have to uh, slaughter animals and process, particularly their gastrointestinal system, um, there's just contamination that happens. A, a certain level of bacterial uh, contamination is acceptable. It obviously is a small amount, but uh, every every piece of meat you buy does have that. Um, this process, this clean meat process, is different because all the inputs are completely um, clean and sterilized. There's no inputs. There's no need for antibiotics. Um, as long as the animal that you're taking the sale samples from is something that is 
been uh, treated the right way, uh, the resulting meat and uh, all the, the tissue you're going to get from that animal are going to be completely clean. So you're able to get things that are organic. Um, this is not a genetic modification. Um, it isn't something that comes from genetically modified or genetically engineered animals. It just comes from uh, any sort of animal you want, really. So it could be the healthiest possible farm animal. And it also sounds like this process would since it's able to be able to to be controlled so precisely that you would be able to keep costs very consistent which means there wouldn't be uh, fluctuations in price but from a consumer standpoint that's very i would feel very good about that but let's go to the other side from the production standpoint I would imagine that the amount of cost that you would be able to remove from the process, just thinking about land and water, just just those two factors, the savings and the increase in the profit margin, it sounds like it would be a no-brainer. Well, yeah, and and I'll I'll caveat that there, there's a lot of advantages. The the life cycle analyses that have been done to date have been extremely promising, but those have been done um, at a you know a lab production scale. So this is something that we feel is extraordinarily promising. But obviously, that's subject and and will be dependent on the the future life cycle analyses that are done later on. But but to your point, yes, so far. The indication is that it saves um, somewhere in the neighborhood of um, 80 to 90 percent of the land that's required um, typically to produce meat, which means you're using that much less, uh, not just land, but herbicides to grow crops, pesticides, fertilizers. You're not having to transport all those feed crops to animals and then you know transport those animals to a slaughterhouse. Your your level of inputs just goes way, way down. Uh, and then there, you're Conversely, your water usage to grow feed crops and, and water the animals drink. So from an ecological standpoint, from a resource input standpoint, um, the theoretical uh, possibilities here are that this meat could end up being far cheaper and have a, a much lower degree of impact on the environment than uh, existing animal meat. Now, of course, since we're at the beginning of this conceptual cycle, I would imagine that a hamburger produced this way would probably cost more than a pound of Aerogel or Vantablack. It's probably as expensive as platinum right now. Um, That won't continue to be the case. But in spite of that, there are already some companies in the United States and in Europe that are producing not just hamburgers. There are several types of products that can come through this process, this clean process, right? Absolutely. Uh, that's one of the beauties of this process is that it's extraordinarily customizable. Um, so, and, and and yeah, the costs are absolutely going to come down too. So the, the first iPhone probably cost a billion dollars to develop uh, because it was a prototype, but now obviously they, they are within a price range that's very affordable for many people. Uh, this is similar. Right now, it's everything's done on a lab scale, small scale, where everything's expensive. But as uh, volume goes up, costs can come down and eventually this can be as inexpensive or even more affordable uh, for the average consumer. Um, and a lot of um, what the benefits that we see down the road for this is that it's going to be extraordinarily easy to customize and say what kind of meat you want. So really, you can go beyond the the typical animals that we usually consume. Uh, biggest ones in the U.S. typically, of course, beef, chicken, pork, uh, different types of seafood. Um, you can produce all those different types of meat, but you can also do other things. You could do uh, an emu burger or a, a gazelle burger or any any sort of animal that you can get a good tissue sample from. Um, that's kind of more of a fanciful example, but one that's probably a little more practical and hits closer to home is uh, thinking through the types of meat and cuts of meat that we enjoy eating the most. Uh, we grow an entire cow 
most of which we don't end up eating, or uh, the majority of which uh, doesn't sell for as high of a price. We don't usually eat um, all of the, say, the organ meat or certain parts of the bones um, uh, or uh, different parts. of the, There's just parts of the cow we just don't use. Uh, but with this process, we'd be able to say, let's just grow an entire um, cultivator full of sirloin or uh, an entire cultivator full of bacon instead of growing the other things in the pig. So it allows us to, to produce like a more higher profit cuts of meat uh, just without doing the whole animal. You said you, you just lost me. I'm sorry, because you said full cultivator of bacon and I just blanked out there for a minute. I apologize. <laughs> um, now, uh, now let's talk about another interesting uh, offshoot of this technological advancement. The same concepts and innovation are affecting plant-based foods as well. Talk to me a little bit about some of the really interesting things that food scientists are doing in the plant-based food area that are very similar to things that we see in meat-based food. Absolutely. So half of the focus of the Good Food Institute is on some of these emerging technologies like clean meat that we see as being a couple years down the road, uh, something that's being developed but isn't quite on the market yet. Uh, whereas plant-based things are available right now. If you go to certain restaurants or you shop in grocery stores, you'll probably be able to find a few products that are uh, plant-based meat, plant-based dairy, plant-based egg products. Um, some of them we're probably familiar with. Uh, if you've uh, lived in the United States for a few years, you've probably seen a lot of different plant-based milks like soy milk, almond milk. Those are probably pretty familiar but recently, we've seen a lot of innovation happening, particularly in the plant-based meat sector, where plants are being made into incredibly realistic uh, mimics of meat. So examples of this would from Morningstar Farms, uh, the Beyond Burger from Beyond Meat, uh, the Impossible Burger from Impossible Foods, um, a lot of Gardein's like chicken products. So just The list goes on and on. Um, there are companies that are processing different types of plant proteins into products that have a lot of the same taste and sensory experiences of meat. And um, again, from the, from the life cycle analyses that we've seen, you end up with a product that uh, is a lot better for the environment, has far fewer resource inputs, requires a lot less land, water, um, all the, the inputs that we kind of need from industrial agriculture, um, and ends up, uh, at least uh, for, for a lot of people, giving them the same sort of experience that they want from meat, which is something that tastes really good and is, is priced affordably and is convenient to, to purchase and cook with. I want to go back to something you said about being able to specify a, a cut of meat or a species of meat. It, it sounds like from a dietary standpoint, the ability to increase the access to types of meat that are better for you just naturally, uh, that are leaner, that are uh, less uh, likely to uh, contribute to heart disease or, or other health issues, it seems like the ability to manufacture specific cuts or species of meat that are actually better for us that's just better for everybody. It, it, you know, it's not just 1% of the world's population that can eat an emu burger. We can make this and everybody benefits from it. Absolutely. Uh, and that's that's part of one of the most exciting parts of this. So it, it's going to be healthier from a couple of different standpoints. Uh, number one is you, you don't need antibiotics all in the, in the growth process. So you're not getting 
uh, those things in your system that make you more susceptible to certain types of, uh, of bugs out there. Um, number two is, uh, as I mentioned before, there's a lot lower um, baseline bacteria risk and food contamination risk because you're com completely controlling the production process and it doesn't have to go through the slaughterhouse uh, system in order to reach your plate. Um, that also, by the way, gives it a longer shelf life because with less bacteria in the initial product, um, it'll still spoil if you leave it out on your counter, but it's going to spoil a lot slower than in, uh, a, a comparable animal-based burger would if you if you leave it out on your counter or leave it in uh, in something that's not the right temperature. Um, back to the health stuff too. The the third area where we're tremendously excited is that because you have so much control over the end product, you can change the profile, the nutritional profile. Of, uh, of that meat. So for example, a lot of animal meat, almost all exclusive uh, the, uh, animal meat is uh, high in saturated fat. And that's what gives it a lot of the, the really enjoyable flavor. And uh, it's possible with this system that you could swap out the bad fats, the, some of the saturated fats with a healthier fat, like a polyunsaturated fat. Um, which is very exciting because that gives us a little bit. We, you know, we know the World Health Organization has said that processed red meats uh, are a known carcinogen or a cancer-causing thing, and it would be great to be able to enjoy things like bacon and all the the processed red meats that consumers really enjoy. But to do so knowing that there's a, a healthier fat in there as opposed to the kind of the, this uh, saturated fat that's one of the biggest causes of things like uh, cancer and heart disease. An unintended benefit of this, I think, would be that if you're able to grow these cuts of meat and create cuts of meat from plants, we just might be able to slow down the rate of extinction that we as humans are putting on our current food sources. Absolutely. So the baseline reason why most meat is very uh, destructive from an environmental standpoint is just that animals are very inefficient converters of um, plant matter that they consume to meat. So a ch uh, ch take chicken as an example. Ch chicken is one of the most efficient meats out there, but it still takes nine calories of energy put into a chicken in the form of feed to get one calorie of meat out. So for all the decades we put into breeding chickens to be efficient feed converters, um, that's still a tremendous amount of food waste, you know, a 900% food waste um, before it even reaches the customer's plate, let alone the food waste that happens after that. So when you're able to instead redirect those, the energy calories you're putting in, in the form of feed crops, when you're able to instead direct those directly into to humans uh, by processing it into plant-based meat or just, just eating those vegetables, you're cutting out an enormous amount of food waste. Um, you're reducing in, in one fell swoop by one ninth the amount of land you have to use and by extension the amount of water you have to use for those crops the fertilizers the pesticides the herbicides all of that and yeah that has a direct bearing on the amount of you know, rainforest we cut down and uh, the amount of farmland and pasture land that we have to can constantly be adding in order to keep up with our existing demand for meat so uh, yeah this this stuff is a lot better from a ecological perspective well, Zach, I want to thank you for putting my mind at ease. I am now no longer worried about the possibility of us running out of bacon. So <laughs> I'm going to rest much easier knowing that you're keeping an eye on it, making sure that uh, bacon is not something that disappears from the face of the planet Earth. So thank you from the bottom of my heart and from the top of my cheeseburger. And today it has been my pleasure to have a conversation with Zach Weston, the Corporate Engagement Specialist with the Good Food Institute. Zach, thanks so much for taking the time today. This was really fascinating. My pleasure. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Sean.
really interesting conversation. Thank you so much to Zach Weston for joining the podcast today, and to our correspondent Sean Heath for conducting that interview. I'm really curious to see where this goes in the future, what the future of meat could be, this clean meat idea. Uh, I'm going to be watching it intently as someone that loves uh, to eat a good steak or a good burger, love bacon, all of that sort of thing. I'm interested to see where this goes in the future and all the different ramifications this could have across the entirety of the industry. Um, Those things are really, really interesting to me. So I'm definitely going to keep an eye on this one moving forward. All right, coming up next is my conversation with Caroline Weeks. And she is a registered dietitian nutritionist at the Mayo Clinic Children's Center. And she's going to join this week's episode of the podcast to talk about the latest trends in nutrition and explain how restaurants can capitalize rather than suffer from these nutrition trends. So a lot of times at the beginning of the year, uh, people decide, hey, I'm going to go on this health kick and they are going to uh, begin eating healthier and that sort of thing. And uh, sometimes it can cause people to eat out less because they don't think there are healthy options. So we're going to talk about some healthy options that are also tasty and appealing to the eye, the taste buds, but also all around good for people. Uh, So you can actually kind of play up that idea rather than uh, shying away from talking about health when it comes to uh, dietary trends and that sort of thing. So it's going to be a really interesting conversation with Caroline Weeks. She's very knowledgeable on this topic and I can't wait to dive in. So uh, coming up next is that conversation with Caroline Weeks, registered dietitian nutritionist at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. Joining me now on the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast this week is Caroline Weeks. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. Caroline, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hey, Tyler. Thank you so much for having me. It's fun to be here. I'm really excited to get to talk to you because uh, the new year kind of brings about a lot of excitement. I think a lot of people uh, start the year with renewed, uh, with a renewed sense of resolve to eat better and to be healthier in a new year. Uh, so it's kind of a time for starting over for a lot of folks. So I just want to start off our conversation by asking about some of the popular trends in terms of nutrition for 2019. What, uh, what diets or what fads are out there and uh, what is the smart science telling you about uh, what's What's good in terms of nutrition here in 2019? Yeah, so you're definitely correct that the new year, everybody has nutrition and exercise in the forefront of their mind, which is great. Uh, I personally don't subscribe to New Year's resolutions, but for those of your readers and listeners out there who do, um, it's a good time to really get back on track and and make that a a good goal. But um, I think in terms of what's trendy and hot in 2019, as far as nutrition goes, um, right now in my world, I'm seeing a lot within the realm of gut health. So gastrointestinal health, your stomach, your small intestine, your large intestine. And um, as a registered dietitian, I actually specialize in the world of GI. Um, So it's kind of exciting that there's so much focus on how to create a good gut microbiome is kind of the keyword that you'll hear a lot in uh, research articles and media. And there's a lot of uh, science and, and research being published as we speak on, on this topic. Um, 
But I think that the whole idea of how to maintain good gut health can get sort of misconstrued and sort of blown out of proportion. So all of a sudden people think, oh my gosh, I've got to get rid of gluten or I've got to get rid of dairy all of a sudden because otherwise my gut health will be out of whack. And and I, what the science tells us is that no, that is not necessarily the case. And uh, you really have to look uh, really hard at, and fast at the hard evidence to before you do anything um, as drastic as that because it can really negatively affect your health when you remove certain foods from your diet when it's not medically necessary. But um, I think speaking more generally and um, for those listeners who work in the restaurant industry, um, it kind of goes under the umbrella of gut health. Uh, plant, plant-focused plant nutrition or plant-based eating is becoming very, very popular um, in the new year. And I think veganism in general, uh, you'll see on Instagram or just general media platforms, that's in the forefront. But um a lot of people subscribe to veganism for different reasons. You know, some are moral, ethical, but um, others for more environmental reasons. So I think in the restaurant industry, uh, kind of going with this whole quote unquote ugly produce trend, plant-based eating um, for the idea of reducing food waste and being more environmentally friendly is a really positive one. And um, what's so nice about incorporating more um, whole grains, fruits, and vegetables into your diet is... um, for, you know, just any Joe Schmo in their own kitchen at home, it's going to reduce their monthly grocery bill by quite a lot when you um, buy fewer animal products, fewer dairy products. Um, but also what science shows is that that will actually um, lead to a, a more positive shift in your gut microbiome. Um, so listeners are probably thinking, oh, well, what's the gut microbiome good for? Um, research shows that when we have the optimal bacteria in our gut, um, so there's good bacteria, there's bad bacteria, we want to increase the amount of that good bacteria. Um, it can, gosh, it, studies have shown that it can reduce incidence of overweight and obesity. Um, it can improve our mood because our gut and our brain are linked on the same nerve axis. Um, so the, the research is qu- pretty incredible. Um, so I think that's why plant-based nutrition is, is such a, a hot trend. Uh, so I, I think that uh, I want to go back to kind of one of the first things you talked about, uh, just about people maybe jumping to conclusions as far as, oh, I need to completely eliminate this out of my diet or do something drastic along those lines. Is that one of the big misconceptions that people often have about nutrition around this time of year, that they make big drastic decisions uh, that can negatively impact their health as well? Yes, drastic is, a, is the key word there. Um, I think when it comes to goal setting, people tend to reach for the stars and get these big hairy goals, which I think is great. But uh, what happens is that people end up not following through with those goals because they're not using the SMART goal kind of frame where um, you, you're realistic with yourself. You start small. You start um, kind of with something that you can easily incorporate in your lifestyle. For me as a dietitian, the thought of removing gluten from my diet is just 
awful. <laughs> I love bread. I love, <laughs> I love stuff like that. I couldn't oh, live without too. real pizza, you know? And I think it's kind of refreshing for people to hear a registered dietitian talk like that. <laughs> um, I'm not all quinoa and raw vegetables, you know? I'm, I'm a real person who, who loves food and, and loves that food can bring families together. You know, I understand like the cultural and um, spiritual relationships with food. So um, why do you want to ruin that? You know, food is such a beautiful part of our, our well-being and our mental health too. So um, yes, that is a, a major misconception that because, you know, XYZ magazine is telling you that dairy is the root of all evil, they think they need to take that out completely in cold turkey. Well, no, that's not the case. And you run the risk of becoming deficient in some pretty critical vitamins like calcium and vitamin D when you do that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, another, I don't want to go off on a tangent again, but another one of the trends that is really, really taken 2019 by storm are alternative milks and alternative yogurts. So if you go down the aisle, it's like really confusing. You just are overwhelmed and bombarded by like 50 different brands of milk. And it's like, oh my God, there's a walnut milk. Like what? (laughs) So... I saw um, banana of, milk the other day. I'd never heard of it. Oh my that god, before. really? Jeez, you're yeah. teaching me stuff now. Yeah, it's crazy what the, what the the industry, the industry unfortunately moves faster than science, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's better, okay? So, um you you should always make your decisions based on evidence-based practice and that's why registered dietitians are employed to do what they do because we analyze and break down the scientific data and then kind of twist that and or not twist but just condense it into a message that um is safe that's um you know that's good for consumers um and that's why i love my job so much because um i'm not i'm not selling information for you know profit i'm not going to get rich off it i'm just doing it because i love making people healthier so um, so yeah, plant-based milks are huge. So you'll see everything from oat milk is going to be big, big, big. Um, I actually like oat milk a lot. It, it performs beautifully in lattes and it froths really well. Um, but you just have to be really careful if you're deciding to cut out dairy, you got to look for enriched products. So a lot of these products are not calcium or vitamin D fortified. Um, they're they're lower in a lot of those essential nutrients that you miss with just good, good old dairy milk. So um, just just a, a topic to kind of be aware of. That's really smart. That's really good advice because I know that that's something that a lot of people will just dive into head first um, without first, I, I think, considering the larger ramifications for it. And I think that gives us a really nice framework to dive into uh, some kind of broader topics that affect the restaurant industry because you talked about being someone that loves food and you really appreciate uh, what it does for us, but also uh, enjoy eating it. And I do too. You know, I, I like a good burger from time to time. But uh, let's let's just discuss a little bit more how restaurants can maybe craft menus that are uh, healthy, you know, that can uh, really help reach out to people, especially this time of the year when people have it in their minds that they're going to eat healthier. How can restaurants craft menus that are healthy and in line with trends and with what science, like what you're talking about, but are also tasty, that that encourages people to go out to those restaurants and pay money for that food and that sort of thing? 
Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest thing that I crave and that I search for in restaurants, whether it's like fast casual or sit down, fancier dine-in establishments, I just look for color. If you incorporate more color into your dish, you're going to get all of those good antioxidants, those anthocyanins, which is just a fancy scientific term for antioxidant. That's the color that makes like a blueberry blue or a radish red. Um, So it's going to be not only very aesthetically pleasing to your guest, but you're also going to be jam-packing that dish full of uh, good, good nutrients. Um, So that's huge. I, I do enjoy, I don't subscribe to any diet in particular. Um, I just choose not to, but I do enjoy eating vegetables and fruits and, and whole grains. And so I think the whole like, I, I've heard the term Buddha bowl or just like plant-based bowl. <laughs> I think that's kind of a fun trend and mm-hmm. it allows... Um, it allows people to kind of customize things and it allows for um, a really satiating meal. So you can incorporate whole grains like quinoa rice or buckwheat or whatever with a, a protein source maybe, whether that's a plant-based protein source like tempeh, seitan or, or tofu or meat like chicken or beef or whatever or fish. Um, and then loading that in with with a variety of vegetables. I, I don't know of many places where they really focus on that. Um, as as a main main dish offering so i think that would be really cool um I think another kind of trend that we're seeing happen in 2019 is incorporating more fresh herbs and botanicals, um, not only for the flavor profile, but also the medicinal and health benefits that those offer. So think like turmeric to make a latte and make it super vibrant yellow or turmeric chicken or something like that. Or, you know, ginger is really um, good for the gut and is amazing. I mean, it tastes amazing. So uh, that would be another thing that chefs and, and restaurateurs can start incorporating more as well. Um, I think, too, um, thinking about uh, reducing total sugars in, in the food that they prepare or using alternative sugars, like maybe coconut sugar and baked goods. Um, also, alternative flours are here to stay because gluten-free is here to stay, okay? It, it is trendy, the whole gluten-free idea, but unfortunately, we are seeing um, a rise of food allergies. Um, researchers, scientists, doctors don't really understand all the reason behind why people are getting more food allergies, mm-hmm. but it's happening. Um, and so to have those good, safe, gluten-free options um, is very, very important. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you're right. It is a trend that we've certainly seen more of in recent years, and those numbers are expected to only continue to rise. And so uh, that's something else for for restaurants just to be aware of. Um, And now I know from uh, your background a little bit that you used to do a little bit of bodybuilding. So you're aware also of how uh, to stay healthy in terms of exercise and that sort of thing. Um, So what are some tips for people that work in the restaurant industry who, uh, A, are around food all the time, and B, don't get uh, a lot of time for certain meals, and C, maybe don't have uh, as much time to uh, visit a gym or something along those lines. What are some just quick and easy ways that these uh, that people in the restaurant industry uh, can eat healthy and also uh, find some time for, for uh, healthy exercise and that sort of thing? 
For sure, yeah. So I'll just to correct you, Tyler. I used to be a power lifter, not a body power builder. Lifter. <laughs> yeah, they're very different. Very different. No, it's fine. It's all good. Um, I need to yeah, work on my def- terminology for weightlifting. <laughs> you do. No, it's fine. Um, so I think it's funny. So uh, when I was in college, putting myself through dietetic school, I worked in the restaurant industry. I I served. I waited. I hosted. I did all that back serving. I was in the kitchen in a very high end French restaurant where. Um, I think the chef had a, a Beard Award or James Beard Award or something like that. So it was kind of the big leagues, at least in the the city that I grew up in. And it's there's always irony um, in the world. And I, I think it's funny that usually chefs and people who work in restaurants lead pretty unhealthy lifestyles, even though sometimes they're serving beautiful, nutritious food. And that's a shame, right? It's... Um, So trying to shift sort of how we plan our schedules in our routine is really where the magic happens. So um, I remember in the kitchen that I worked in, it was really small, really close quarters. And man, did that oven get hot. Oh, Oh, my gosh. It would just burn. And and people were sweating and chef was, you know, wiping the the sweat from his hand with a cloth. You know, he had like assistants wipe his face back. And it was it was (laughs) really, really intense. Um, So hydration is key for those in in a back kitchen. Um, Making sure that you're hydrating with water. Um, Water is the best. Okay. So caffeine, as much as I hate to say, because I love caffeine, it's not hydrating us. It's actually doing the opposite. It's a, it's a dehydrator. Um, so think like energy drinks, Red Bulls. That's something I commonly saw in the in the restaurant industry. Just because you know you got to stay awake, you got to stay sharp. Um, but it's really doing you're worse off health wise when you choose that as a beverage. So whether it's like cucumber water, mint water, just regular water. Nowadays, they actually make um, electrolyte tablets that you can dissolve into your water, which are sugar-free. So that's a really, really great alternative um, just to make sure that you're staying really well hydrated. That would be a big one. And also when we're well hydrated, that keeps us fuller, keeps us satiated um, after we've eaten. So some people forget to drink water after they've had a meal. Um, thinking about, you know, packing a healthy snack that involves some sort of carbohydrate and protein together, um, in your apron or something like that to, to quick, uh, you know, wolf down in between guests or something between courses is, is also really helpful. Um, so for me, like, what would that be? I don't know, nuts and fruit or like hummus and carrot sticks or celery sticks or like beef jerky or um, just trying to think of something else like a peanut butter sandwich or something easy. I mean, it doesn't have to be simple. I think that's another misconception, Tyler, is that, you know, when you work in a restaurant, you've got to make everything so beautiful and perfect. Like, no, I'm a dietitian. I don't eat fancy all the time. Um, I just eat in some ways to just move on with my day. Like food Mm -hmm. is not actually in the forefront of my mind all the time. Um, but that's a big one. And then also too, if you guys have a family meal together, you know, I know that chefs and, and coworkers all eat together and they share a meal, make sure that you have all food groups represented. Like you have a nice salad tossed quickly, or you've got a piece of lean protein offered or a plant-based protein offered since now we're all trying to eat more plants in 2019. Um, and then having some sort of whole grain because all of those food groups synergistic together will work to um, satiate you, to give you the vitamins, minerals that you need. So um, though it sounds simple, it's really not. (laughs) People sometimes (laughs) 
don't eat from all, all the different food groups at a meal. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are just some really simple tips to keep people feeling good. Um, I think hydration is really a key though, because, you know, if without being well hydrated, you're going to be prone to feeling ragged. You're going to be prone to headaches, just feeling foggy, which is the last thing you want when you're, when you're on the kitchen floor. Um, and then in terms of exercise, you know, um, just make time to maybe do a lap around the back parking lot or something like that. You know, just get yourself moving. You don't uh, have to make it a big deal. Any movement is better than nothing. And anything really does count. Um, Mm -hmm. Your commute to work. Maybe you live close. You want to bike or you want to walk. Like joyful movement. Not not thinking that you just got to structure a time at the gym and you got to lift weights. That's that's very close minded thinking when it comes to exercise. Um, so, so kind of choosing, choosing exercises that you love and and making that more of a part of your lifestyle in a slow way is better. That is Caroline Weeks. She is a registered dietitian nutritionist at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. Also, she is power lifted, not body built, power lifted, (laughs) as I know now. And, uh, yeah, so thank you so much for all of that insight, Caroline. I think that that's really, really uh, informative, and I I hope that this helps uh, everyone kick off 2019 uh, the way that they hopefully will and create good habits moving forward also. Uh, Like you mentioned, you're not so much into the the New Year's resolution type thing, but if people create good habits, maybe they can continue them uh, going forward in their lives, and that's helpful. Most definitely. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much for for having me on. Um, For your listeners who want to learn more about evidence-based nutrition and how to incorporate um, healthy kind of tips and and tricks into their their work in restaurant or out of the restaurant, uh, feel free to follow me on Instagram. I use that as an educational platform to really spread positive nutrition messages to people. Uh, My handle is at the clinic dietitian. So thanks for listening, you guys. Absolutely. That is really awesome stuff. Caroline, thank you so much again for joining us here on the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. Thank you again to Caroline Weeks for joining this week's episode of the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. Thank you also to our correspondent, Sean Heath, for having that conversation earlier with Zach Weston of the Good Food Institute. Really interesting conversations there just about different trends in the food and beverage industry. I hope you enjoyed that look at two of them right there. That is all we have for this week's episode of the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We do very much appreciate it. If you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, make sure to subscribe so you get all of the latest episodes just directly right there on your phone or mobile device, however you are listening to us. If you're on the Market Scale Food and Beverage Industry page, just hit bookmark on that page so you can make sure to stay up to date with all of the latest podcasts and written articles and all of that stuff, all of the different content that we come out with on a regular basis. We're going to be back with another episode of the Food and Beverage Podcast shortly. But until then, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for listening. 